Welcome to The Joe Cohen Show. Join me as I share my experience with biohacking and invite top health experts to explore the latest technology, supplements, research, and resources for optimizing your body and brain. Hey, everyone. I'm really excited about this podcast because I just did an epigenetic test with True Diagnostic, and we're going to be going through some of the results, what it means. I'm going to be asking Ryan a bunch of questions. Just to give you a little bit of a background of Ryan, he started a compounding pharmacy called TaylorMade Compounding, became a big company, and he sold that and found True Diagnostics. True Diagnostics is an epigenetics company, different than a genetics company, just so people understand. Sometimes people get confused. Epigenetics is the gene expression. You're, you have, let's say, genetic predispositions, but then your epigenetics is the uh, gene expression. And in particular, he's looking at gene expression for aging and certain other things, but mainly uh, aging. So there's a, a test that they provide that's the, you know, Dune Pace, Dune Dune Pace uh, aging scores. So you could see your epigenetic aging and your pace of aging. And they have the largest private epigenetics database in the world with over 25,000 patients tested. And they're doing a lot of interesting work. Now, I have a lot of questions about epigenetics, what my results mean, what's the value of the test. And so I'm really excited to be talking to you, Ryan, today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Joe. I'm uh, excited to share with you and uh, go over your results. Awesome. So let's just go through some of the basics. And this is kind of uh, the question that a lot of people have, where does this kind of epigenetic test fall into the aging biomarkers? Because you have, I mean, there's a lot of biomarkers that could be construed as an aging biomarker, including testosterone, blood pressure, basically anything that is correlated with aging. And, um, you know, so blood pressure, testosterone, even blood sugar. So you get more insulin resistance as you get older. You you gain some weight sometimes. So a lot of these kinds of metrics. Where does this epigenetics test fall into the host of, of markers? Yeah, definitely. Um, and and I might be biased, but I would say certainly number one. Uh, probably the most important thing you can do to quantify your aging process. Um, and, and to take a step back, I think we would just want to talk about why this is important. Why should people be even thinking about measuring biological age? Um, and it's this idea that aging is the number one risk factor for every chronic disease and death. So if you don't have another disease, your biggest risk factor for developing one is going to be aging. And if we can treat this process, if we can sort of slow that process down, then we can have massive impacts. Um, so for instance, if everyone in the world were to be 70 years younger biologically than they are chronologically, we'd be able to cut disease in half. Uh, 50% overnight. And so these can make some really, really big changes. But um, when we talk about all of the different aging biomarkers, you're right. Aging is so complex. There are so many of them. Um, there are blood-based biomarkers. There's VO2 max, Crip strength, um, you know, a whole host of things that change with age. But what we're really doing when we're looking at these aging algorithms is trying to predict which is the most associated with negative aging-related outcomes. Um, so what is the most likely to predispose you to disease or all of those other consequences of aging? And by far, the most predictive um, biological age clocks are DNA methylation clocks. They, they really explain that variance or those changes which happen with age better than any other clock, which is why they're number one in my book. Okay. And so let's say, um, I, I think the way that we would 
quantify it, right? Because I, I think um, we, we want to try to quantify these things as much as possible. So like, mm-hmm. you know, Peter Atia, let's say, is very big into VO2 max because mm-hmm. the risk of death from all causes goes up tremendously as your VO2 max is lower or vice mm-hmm. versa as well. Your, your risk of death goes down as your VO2 max goes up. And so he's he's very into that. Where does, and and for good reason, like he gives an example that, you know, if you smoke, your risk of death goes up, let's say 50% over a 10 year period. But if you, even if you smoke, but you have a high VO2 max, your risk of death is still like your VO2 max is actually more predictive than if you're a smoker, significantly more. And yeah. so uh, what is like, um, if someone has a higher epigenetic score or aging mm-hmm. score, what is what is the risk of death and how does that number compare to VO2 max? Yeah, so to be honest with you, I haven't done a direct comparison with VO2 max. Um, and the only reason for that is because quite frankly, it's not even at the top of our list in terms of other comparators. Um, a lot of these other epigenetic age clocks um, are, are even better than that. And so I give a good example um, uh, of one of the algorithms we just created with Harvard. It's called Omic Age. So this is an algorithm we've spent over three and a half years on with Harvard. Um, and uh, it, we basically the most uh, accurate death predictor that's ever been created. Um, it's the only uh, death predictor that can predict death with over a 90% confidence level. Uh, 90% accuracy level within 10 years. So basically, if we're trying to predict if you will die in 10 years, we we can do it so with right around a 91% accuracy. Um, so we can be fairly accurate. Uh, to give you you know uh, another comparison, chronological age, for instance, just as a, a general marker, if we we knew you were 80 and then just tried to project you know that you're past that that uh, average lifespan, uh, we would only be correct right around 75% of the time. Um, so for us to be correct. Uh, you know, 91% of the time is a significant improvement. And right now it's one of the best death predictors uh, that's ever been created, um, including out of any other markers. But um, I should also mention that to create that and with DNA methylation alone, we can also predict things like VO2 max. We can also predict things like grip strength, muscle mass, all with just a, a few drops of DNA. Um, and so, um, so we can actually in, start to inform our algorithms with different pieces of other biology. Um, so, for instance, we uh, are can, in our algorithm, we actually do predict smoking status. Um, and some of the best things we also predict are lung function measurements, not as similar to VO2, but things like FEV1 or FVC, these lung function measurements, which when we incorporate smoking and these lung function measurements and even other markers like triglycerides, HbA1c, all through DNA methylation, we can get a really big picture of the biology of aging. And that is the most informative to us. Um, and, and this is really important because as, as you and I were both talking about, uh, aging is complex, right? There are a million different biomarkers. There are a million different things that change as we get older. Um, and so we really want to capture that full constellation of symptoms um, and, and different problems so that we can really predict the outcomes. Because that's really what we want to change is what's, what are our risk factors and how do we actually use this data to make ourselves healthier? Okay, so that's interesting. I mean, bottom line is you're saying that this is more predictive than VO2 max based yeah. on the data you've seen. Definitely. Um, uh, and, by, and by a wide margin. Um, and so we're not talking, uh, you know, 10%. We're talking more like 20% increases in prediction of most age-related disease. Um, the other thing is that generally VO2 max might be predictive of things like all-cause mortality, but it not, might not be as predictive for things like depression or, um, you know, uh, uh, type 2 diabetes or whatever, uh, uh, kidney dysfunction, right? Um, right? So it might have certain aspects of aging, but it's not the whole thing. 
Um, and it might be very, very good because generally, you know, those correlations between physical function um, are really important for determination of overall health. Okay. So uh, do you mind if I ask you, and what is your biological age with this test? Yeah. So um, uh, to be honest with you, I started, I started high. I started when we first did the company. I was expecting uh, to do pretty well, but I was about three and a half years older um, uh, biologically than I was chronologically. Um, now I'm thankfully around two years younger. So I'm right around in my 29.5, um, age group. Um, and, uh, at least, uh, uh, biologically. Um, and I keep seeing some improvements, but I also see, do see things that make me a little bit worse. Um, my rate of aging, which is one of our favorite algorithms. Um, you know, I, 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 I struggle with that a little bit sometimes my rate of aging goes a little bit higher than most people. I'm on average, I'm around a 0.83. Uh, where other people are setting, you know, record the 0.69 or, uh, you know, uh, even 0.59 is what I've seen recently. So, um, so my rate of aging is not as great, but uh, my overall biological age is, is certainly getting better. So that, that's something that I'm a little, you know, confused about because you, let's say for me, right, uh, my biological age is around what my actual age is, mm -hmm. okay? But my rate of aging is 0.72. So if that's the case, and, and you couldn't say that, okay, but maybe I brought it down recently, that, that could be the answer. But if that's the case, um, I, feel like, I feel like my biological, my age should be lower. And, and, and like you're saying, you're saying that you actually brought your biological age down from three years older to two years younger. That's a five-year difference. But you're still, your rate of aging is actually higher than mine. Mine is 0 0.72. Uh, yeah. And so how does that make sense? Yeah. And, and unfortunately, this can get complicated very, very quickly. But the, uh, the important thing to note is, um, and, and really to draw maybe an analogy to genetics, I like to talk about the difference between polymorphisms in genetics and epigenetic or methylation or genetic risk scores, right? These, these polygenic risk scores. Whereas, you know, if we're looking at a certain gene variant, we can find out what that means, what that tells us. But when we incorporate it into maybe polygenic risk scores, where we're looking at multiple different SNPs. What we're essentially doing is combining a lot of pieces of data for one overall outcome. What is your risk of X, right? Um, and in the methylation Which space- Which is what we do. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and in the methylation space, um, almost everything that we can read out is not going to be polymorphism based. It's all algorithm or risk based. So when we talk about these algorithms or these outputs, we really have to talk about the, the method for reporting the algorithm. So whenever we're talking about each of these different results, we're talking about a certain different algorithm, a certain different way to interpret that data. And so sometimes they're not all compatible because they've all been trained or created in different ways. Um, so one of my examples of this is when these clocks started, these clocks were really just meant to predict your chronological age. So they were used in, in things like dating refugees to see if they were adults or minors. They were used in, in crime scene investigations to see if somehow old someone was that they left the DNA at a crime scene. Um, but they weren't really used as a health tool until they started to see this trend, which was that those people who did this testing and were younger than their chronological age were protected against negative outcomes in the future. And then vice versa, those people who were older had higher risk. And so even though this was meant to be something to predict your chronological age, because of these health associations, we found out it was really a biological age predictor. But the problem with this is that the better that those algorithms got, the closer they just got to telling you your, your chronological age, which for most people, you don't need uh, an expensive test to tell you, right? Um, you, and, and so, uh, so those are the first generation clocks around 2013. But, but people really quickly realized that if you really want to capture the biology of aging, 
we've got to have better ways to train these algorithms. Um, and so the second generation of clocks started to be trained um, to different things. Things like nine blood-based biomarkers like albumin or different hormone levels that change with age or predicting time until death um, or even trying to predict telomeres as an output. Um, and those clocks got better. And the reason we know they got better is because um, they, if, if someone was one year accelerated um, compared in this clock versus the old clock, this clock predicted much, much more risk. Um, and then, uh, and, and so we know that it was capturing more of that biology because it was able to be more predictive of negative outcomes. Um, and then the third generation, which is the, the Dunedin pace is the only third generation clock, that one that tells you your pace of aging. And so that's one of why it's one of our favorites is it, it's definitely the most updated came out in 2021. Um, and that actually tracked patients longitudinally. So it tracked patients from the moment they were born all the way until they were, you know, age 45. Um, to sort of establish this pace. And so when we talk about some of these early biological age clocks, we, we might not like them or have a preference over them as much as some of the newer ones like that Dunedin pace, which is why that Dunedin pace is always the one that we're going to trust more than any other. Um, another good example of how this can sometimes uh, cause some issues is whenever we talk about interventional trials, right? The real reason people want to measure this is so they can change it. Um, and, uh, and I always like to, to talk about uh, caloric restriction. Caloric restriction is one of the most well-validated anti-aging therapies across multiple animal species, including human. Um, but if we look at those first-generation clocks, as one trains to predict chronological age, um, they actually go up with caloric restriction, which we know is not correct. <laughs> uh, so, so what we're so basically these clocks that are have been trained to predict chronological age, they're capturing some aging-related biology, but really what they're capturing is is biology changes that are correlated to chronological age. And that's not nearly as important as the actual physiological changes which are happening with our bodies we're aging, where like the Dunedin pace can pick that up because it was trained on lung function measurements, as we've already talked about, HbA1c, even gum health measurements from, from dental imaging. Um, and together, that's able to capture a lot more biology. So whenever we look at that clock in caloric restriction, we see that it significantly goes down, just as we would expect. And so some of these earlier clocks have ha certainly had limitations. Um, and now these newer clocks that are coming out are the best ways to quantify aging biology and the most predictive. I'll give you one more stat just to illustrate this difference. One standard deviation uh, increase in the Horvath clock, the original Horvath clock that came out that, um, in 2013, would lead to a 2% increased risk of mortality versus one standard deviation increase in that Dunedin pace. That would represent a 64% increase in mortality. Oh, so wow. again, as we're comparing which one's more important, we're really not going to care about that 2% as nearly as much as we're going to care about that 64%. What, what would that uh, standard deviation be equivalent into like raw score metrics? Like points, yeah, so, how many points? Yeah, so generally uh, it's going to be uh, right around, around point, I would say one nine um, uh, points on that scale. Um, so uh, that's that's a still a big margin, right? Um, in terms of one standard deviation, um, but uh, but again, it plays a major impact. Sixty four percent increased risk of mortality, but it also has effects on every quality of life related thing too. Um, which is the other reason we really like that Dunedin pace is because it it is related to things like facial aging. It's related to memory and IQ, mental processing speeds, balance, grip strength, and muscle mass. And so um, so that's the other reason we really like it is because. A lot of people um, often say, why would I want to live longer? Um, why would I want to live in a nursing home and have a poor quality of life? And we like to show that there that it's not a that's a sort of a false dichotomy. You don't have to choose between a long life or a healthy one. If you're improving your aging, you're generally going to improving all of your quality of life, how you look, feel and move about the world while still having longer life as well.
That's very interesting. So that clarifies. I actually completely understand it, like what you said in the sense of, first of all, there's different, they're really different algorithms, one and the other, and they're predicting different things a little bit, right? So absolutely, the first generation, like you said, is really just trying to predict your age, not how healthy you are, your actual age. The second yeah. generation is going to be heavily, is still going to be heavily skewed to predicting your age, your actual age. And so even if you're super healthy and you're very low risk for disease, it might still just put you at your actual age just because there's a lot of waiting to things that are your actual age. The real, the real good marker that you guys are offering is the pace of aging, which will go up and down based on, and, and that, that's where that you see, you're seeing the big differences in mortality. Yeah. So that is really interesting. That's the thing that we really need to look for more than what my actual biological age is, I feel like. It's, you're you're, it, you're yeah. absolutely right. Um, and, and, and I want to mention that, that uh, the restrictions of some of those early clocks are being improved and changed. So this new algorithm we have coming out with Harvard Omic Age, uh, which uh, we've been, again, working on diligently, that is actually even now more predictive than just needing pace. Um, and we also created an algorithm with Yale called Systems Age, which can actually break down the age of 11 different organ systems um, and then tell you which organ system is aging fast. Um, between the Dunedin pace, the, the omic age, and our Systems Age clock, we have the best aging predictions for any disease. Um, and so that includes uh, neurocognitive things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. It includes heart disease, it includes cardiovascular disease, renal disease. We have the most predictive algorithm um, to quantify aging in every single disease outset between those three. Um, and so, uh, so with that being said, we really feel like now we can capture the age with resolution we've never seen before, but also give now the amount of, amount of information we need to really know what to do to change it. And that's also been something that's, uh, even on your report, you, you know, we hadn't been able to do. We might be able to tell you if you're, if you're accelerated or if you're decelerated, which is a great start to know where you're at, but we weren't able to make personalized recommendations or tell you what's driving that process in you. Um, and now we're getting to have that resolution. Oh, that would be amazing if you can actually have recommendations based on that, because the way I see it, the biggest. Uh, so first of all, I'm a very big fan of any kind of tests that will measure health. Right. And because no matter how good the test is, there's always going to be a weakness to every test and a strength to a test. Right. And so we have a lot of lab markers that I, I study a lot of lab markers that increase mortality quite a lot, right? Like mm -hmm. 60, we're also seeing like you could do a lot of uh, markers that is like 64% increased mortality mm -hmm. if you have this, that, and the other. So I look at a lot of lab markers and the, the way I see that uh, alternative medicine, functional medicine, and, and medicine ideally as well, but that's going to take a, a long time. The way that that needs to go is really the data. Like what does the data say? I don't care about your opinion, what you mm -hmm. think, what does the data, let's just look at facts and then come to conclusions based on facts. And so that's what testing does is it's data. And that, that it, you know, it's, it's a fact that if you get this pace of aging, your risk of all these different diseases is lower by this amount, right? Mm -hmm. um, as on a whole, right? Not on an individual level, you always, you don't know exactly, but that's, that's what I really love. I love the, the you know, the, because right now in health, it's like, this diet and, and I've got this diet and you should do this, take this supplement. I don't care what anybody says anymore. Show me the data. You did this and what happened, right? Like exactly. did you, what biomarkers did you optimize by doing this? Um, I, I feel like we want to move this as much to 
uh, you know, actually like data oriented. And, and that's also what we're trying to do with self-decode. When we tell you your polygenic risk, you can then say, okay, here's my weaknesses, genetic weaknesses. And then what are the database of clinical trials that counteract all these weaknesses, right? And then something Absolutely. that, and that's like a, a starting point. And then something where your test comes in and, and other kinds of lab tests is you can see, okay, I'm doing this. Now I want to make sure that X, Y, and Z are also good based on what I'm doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so exactly, that's, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry, didn't, didn't mean to run, but I, I couldn't agree more. I think that this is sort of the thesis of, of really why we're so excited to create age biomarkers is because we know that aging is so important. But if you ask any physician, any, any uh, person what they should do to protect their aging, you might get literally 100 different answers. It, it, it's always going to be different. So we really wanted to standardize this process and make aging research um, uh, uh, sort of just uh, consistent across the board where we have the same biomarkers that, that we can, you know, if we're measuring the difference between hyperbaric oxygen at high pressures or low pressures, we have data to tell us which direction is, is really driving. Um, and, and we think that, again, for longevity, this is something that's been a long time coming um, because, uh, you know, I think that uh, everyone realizes that they probably know people in their, in their 50s who look like they're 70 and they probably know people in their 70s who look like they're 50. And, and that means something to us if we, if we see someone who's doing all of these things. But, um, you know, underlying all of that is all of the biological changes that, the, uh, you know, that, that make someone healthy. And we're really trying to quantify that to make aging a real science, um, to make it a part of medicine. Just as, you know, cardiovascular disease is a real part of medicine. Um, we really want to make it a, a specialty we can measure. And you're absolutely right. Without a consistent measuring stick, um, it becomes complicated and, and gibberish really quickly where you just, all the noise just confuses you instead of empowers you. I love that. I, I'm going to ask you a question that is impossible to answer really. Um, but I want to just, I'm curious what you think. If two individuals will take the same thing, right? Uh, the same supplement or do the same thing are I, i'm assuming you know like this and every other test people can have different responses to different things so like in one individual maybe a vegetarian diet decreases their biological their their rate of aging let's say and maybe in someone else it doesn't that do you see that or uh or not really you it's pretty I, consistent I would, yeah. you do this and it works for everybody yeah, I would say that um, uh, that we do see it. Uh, we do see differential responses. However, it tends to be relatively uncommon. I would say that that a lot of people have very similar responses. But I will also mention that that's probably a limitation of our patient population as well, where um, you know the people that are doing our testing tend to be some of the healthiest, uh, generally a little bit more uh, affluent and, and well off. Um, and uh, and so as a result, we have a very healthy cohort um, that is really not very complicated um, at the end of the day. Um, but whenever we start getting into people with complications, people that maybe have comorbidities like different types of diseases or cancer, then I think the answer is yes. Um, these things start to change in, in really large ways. Um, and uh, so I, I see we don't have a lot of smokers as customers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not many, not many. But uh, one, of, one of the cool things about and this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, we actually have an algorithm that can tell you how much you've smoked across your lifetime in terms of pack years. And that oh, algorithm actually is is more predictive of uh, negative smoking related outcomes than even self-reported smoking status. Um, and yeah. so we have some cool ways to, to see behaviors even in that DNA methylation. So we can actually tell you about our cohort's behaviors. 
Um, but um, but to, to go back to your example, uh, we actually just did a, a trial, um, a trial with uh, a twins between vegan versus omnivore diets. Um, and so we did this with Stanford. Uh, many people might have seen the Netflix documentary um, Game Changers, which was uh, about this pro uh, sort of uh, vegan diets. And uh, uh, they sort of financed Stanford to do another study where we took 22 pairs of twins. So we actually took one twin on an omnivore diet. We took one twin on a vegan diet for eight weeks. Um, and measured their responsiveness. And this trial was really, really good for us because we had twin controls, right? We, we eliminated genetic differences, which is a huge part of, of this analysis. Um, and when we did, we saw much more consistent results. Um, but but uh, whenever we compared twins individually, we did see differential responses, um, according to even which suggests to us that we might have different responses based on our underlying genomic factors, right? Which is probably not a surprise, but it's an important thing to mention. Um, and, uh, and, and I won't bury the lead anymore, but we did see anti-aging uh, effects with the vegan diet versus the omnivore diet. Um, it was just in eight weeks um, and, and, and it wasn't a younger population. Um, it's a couple of things that I think are really important to tell there. But, uh, but yes, differential responses, which is exactly why we think people should, should get an idea of what's driving that um, and then you know, remeasure to see what's actually working for them versus what is the general recommendations for a population size cohort. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very interesting one. Um, I, I think the critical factor for the, the, the vegan diet study that you did was eight weeks. And um, some of the, the main problems with the vegan diet are actually long-term, in my opinion, right? So yeah. mm -hmm. um, I've seen many people build up, I, I study food sensitivities a lot, and I see people build up food sensitivities on a vegan diet because mechanistically, they're deficient on, on a lot of things that counteract that. And so that mm -hmm. takes actually time to occur, whereas, it, you know, if you're on a vegan diet for eight weeks or maybe even a half a year, you can see good benefits, but you would really need to see a very long term trial. So um, like multi multi year, like five years, I would want to see in order to yeah. really uh, get information. Yeah. We, we couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, it's a, it's a good start for data generation, but uh, we certainly would want to go longer, especially in one of the biggest considerations for us is, is frailty and, and muscle mass. You know, as we get older and start to lose, we become sarcopenic, lose that muscle mass. Um, sometimes some of the biggest critiques of the vegan diet, they don't have enough protein to maintain muscle mass. Um, and, and that's the other reason I mentioned our cohort was relatively younger um, mm. is because they're probably not experiencing um, as much muscle mass as maybe some older people who are undergoing that frailty process. And so, so with all of these studies, you know, uh, you have to take uh, all of that into consideration when you're doing these analysis. Um, but, uh, but hopefully they're still generating some good data and answering some questions. Like, for instance, um, I think that differential response is due to maybe other things that we saw here. Yeah. Uh, okay, so here's a quick question. When, I, when somebody looks at these scores, are you doing a, uh, like, okay, so my pace of aging is 0.72. That's what my result was. Is that compared to the database of people that you're testing? Because you're testing a very healthy population, or, you're or is that compared to just the general population, which is mostly sick, yeah. in my opinion? Yeah, another great question. Another great question, because uh, unfortunately, every algorithm is going to be different according to the population which created that algorithm. Correct. So, uh, for instance, if we go to... Um, you know, a European population and create an algorithm, it might not hold out in terms of validation of performance in a U.S. patient patient population. We've actually had this happen. We had an obesity risk predictor um, that we created in a Spanish population that just didn't work, quite frankly, in the U.S. population. Um, but in the case of most of these aging algorithms, um, we can improve that um, because of the size and the sample cohorts we've used to generate the algorithms. 
But this is, uh, so for instance, we can generate this cohort, but we still have to validate and test it in a completely separate cohort. Um, and so for all of our, our testing on our reports, none of those patients that we've used in our, um, our data sets have been used to train any of our algorithms. Um, mm. So we try and keep it separate so that we're not uh, creating an algorithm the on, yeah, on a yeah. cohort that it's not applicable in. And the other, but this is the other thing that I think is the most important. Um, and that is that for anyone um, who's doing a, a biological age test, um, the number one recommendation for, for anyone doing that is to find one that has been published. Um, because this is how we actually know that the algorithm works and that you should pay attention to it. Um, otherwise, I tell people it's like going to a fortune teller. You can choose to believe them, but it's better to have some of that data. The, and so number funny, one of which you need to publish. <laughs> the funny thing is, is like everything you're saying, I'm like, oh, this is like deja vu within my company, <laughs> meaning like, you know, you have to train it on this data set and then it might not work with different ancestries, which is why we do a poly, an ancestry adjusted polygenic risk scoring and also be extremely careful with, ge with genetic companies because basically what's happening is anybody just pops up, goes online, looks at a couple SNPs and says, oh, here's your risk for this. And they're just, there's, there's no data whatsoever. They're just pulling together a bunch of stuff from their ass. And, and exactly. we're just like, what, like, that's not predictive <laughs> of anything. And that's why we're, we're also, uh, we're about to publish all of our stuff. Like we have internal yeah. data right now, but the key thing is like, we're about to publish all the stuff to show everybody, okay, here's what the algorithm could do. And that's what I really like about you guys. You're not just saying, hey, just trust us. Like we're the best. You're actually publishing stuff. And I, and I hear based on how you're talking, based on the way you're actually doing things, it's, it's not just based on it. To be very honest, a lot of the ways that uh, some of the functional medicine world works, especially in yeah. genetics, I, I don't know if it's like this in epigenetics, but in genetics, it's just like everybody and their grandmother is creating, here's a bunch of SNPs and I'm going to tell you everything you ever wanted to know from these three SNPs or five SNPs or 10 SNPs. It's like, no, that's not how it works. It's like <laughs> millions and millions of SNPs that are... Yeah. Uh, interacting with these diseases and you have to train models, right? You have to use very sophisticated systems, machine learning, AI. You can't just have somebody go to PubMed and, and type in some <laughs> SNP RSIDs and it's, and here's your risk. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's useless. Yeah, you're 100% right. I think that, um, you know, in, in, and I hate to say this, I, I mean, I, you, I, I've seen this in genetics, just like you're mentioning, you know, that's why there's, you know, a million different companies out there, but very few doing it in a reliable way, um, which I also think is why some people get disillusioned, not just with, you know, genetic, but epigenetics as well as, you know, for instance, even on our testing, some people might say, hey, I took a biological age test, you know, I did everything the right way, and then my age shot up, right? And caloric restriction is a good example, right? We talked about that with those first generation clocks, uh, and they get disillusioned saying, hey, this technology doesn't work. Um, I know it doesn't work because I, I lost 20 pounds. I decreased my LDL cholesterol. My systemic inflammation went down and my age still went up. What's happening here? And you can disillusion people very quickly by not having algorithms that are accurate. And it's exactly the same way. I think that people, um, people think about this idea of aging. Um, you know, it's not recognized as a disease by the FDA yet. Um, and so it, it allows them to do things a little bit without regulation. And I think that that's exactly what's hurting the space. Is it's taking uh, it's taking this concept of age and making it not scientific and just more of a novelty. Um, and I think that we really want to do it the other way. So yes, publications. I think you're the exact same way. Look at how that that data reflects. Um, and uh, and it's not hard to, to judge these things. You can have an equal measuring 
uh, a lot of these populations have all of the same data. So they have genetics, they have epigenetics, and you can compare them side by side to see what one works better. And you find that there's a lot of just crap. Like I, I don't, I haven't seen as many of these like mom and pop just marketing scams as, as yeah. I see. like every day there's a new genetics company out there. Like, Hey, what do you think of it? Somebody literally just sent me yesterday. Hey, somebody told me to get this test. I look at it. They're looking at five snips here, 10 snips here. I'm like, I could see this is already junk. <laughs> like, like there's no validation, not, no real science. Yeah. I, you know, I could build this in like literally a week, just yeah. grab some snips yeah. from PubMed and, and chuck <laughs> them in there. That's, that's yeah, really what it is. You're, you're exactly right. It's, it, it is happening, unfortunately, in methylation. And, and um, you know, one of the other, yeah, so you know, it's certainly a problem, uh, you know, it, but with methylation, I hate to say it, it's, uh, it's even more complicated than genetics, which leads to many more problems a lot of the times. So, you know, one of the things is obviously it changes and it also changes from cell to cell. So the reason I, I explain this is, you know, uh, uh, every cell in our DNA has, every cell in our body has the same DNA, right? If we look at our heart or our liver or our brain, same DNA sequence but massively different epigenetic sequence. Um, so, uh, you know, that's because our heart needs to behave like a heart. So it's going to turn off some genes and turn on other genes, whereas our liver doesn't need those same. It's going to have a different expression. Um, and so, so even for us, tissue type matters. What tissue we're actually measuring, saliva versus buccal cells versus, uh, you know, blood. We only use blood because for us, that's the only data that has validation. So, uh, people have been banking blood and, and plasma for 50, 60 years. We can actually look at that, that those, those markers and then see what happens to them. So that's actually how we know that our predictions on death are accurate um, because we've actually seen people whose DNA we've measured and then predicted when they're going to die um, and then actually have that real data to show when they actually did die. Um, but no one really has kept, uh, I would say, banks of saliva DNA because usually blood DNA is they already have. Um, and so it's really hard to validate these long-term things with saliva, uh, but it also brings up problems of uh, what we're measuring, right? We might take my blood and we might take your blood and you might have many more CD8 T cells than I do or B cells than I right. do. And that can affect these algorithms if you don't control for it. Um, and, and so in the early days, we didn't control for it. We, we, we didn't take into account immune cell subsets. And what we saw was that people sometimes who were had massively increased ages or, or massively decreased ages, which we know mm. is not real. Because, right. you know, having a sickness doesn't mean that you're going to die, you know, 20 years earlier. It means that at the moment you're just slightly different. Right. <laughs> um, and then you're going to go back to normal. And so, so we have to control for what cell types we even see within a sample. Um, so whenever we do a sample now, we actually control for 12 different immune types. We can we tell you what your CD4, your naive my memory cells, your B cells, natural killer cells. We quantify those so that we can make sure that if one of those is increased, we're not changing your algorithm. Um, and, and so cell type is important. Precision is important. And, and really, epigenetics is where DNA was 20 years ago. It's still got a long way to go. It's got a long 100%. way to grow. And, and, and we're really trying to make sure that, uh, you know, that it's all consistent and reliable um, and actually makes a difference. And this is one of the big reasons we haven't gone direct to consumer in as big of a way and really talk with a lot of providers because you need a lot of bigger medical knowledge to make sure these are interpreted in the right way, or at least you have. Now we're getting to yeah. a place where... These are in of one use case scenarios and a little bit more helpful. We're seeing it actually is quite complex in genetics in different ways as well. And, and mm -hmm. you see sometimes people don't know how to interpret the results. Like mm -hmm. you can like there's certain basic things, for example, you can be high risk for a disease, but low actual risk, like high genetic risk, mm -hmm. low actual risk, because it could like it could be very lifestyle based. Right. 
you can have a high risk for blood pressure, but if you're actually doing all the stuff that you need to to be very healthy, not likely you're going to have a high blood pressure if you're just being really healthy, you know? So um, at least not at a, you know, a, a age of 40, 50, whatever, maybe at like 90 or something. But exactly. the point is, is that there's a lot of these kind of complexities. And also people don't understand probability very much. So you know, these are all markers like for to predict. But technically you could have a good marker and then you could die tomorrow for something that it just didn't pick up, right? So it's yeah. possible. That's so fine. that's and why I, I think you really want to get as many data points as possible. But like you said, I think the uh, epigenetic age is a really good data point that mm -hmm. you can track that you're, you're not going to get from your doctor, like, yeah. it, you know, it, from, a, from a CBC or something like that, right? Exactly. And, and I think that, that that's one of the other things I'll, I'll say about, um, you know, methylation is that it is able to do some unique things because it's also measuring current status, right? Because of, of some of these changes. So, you know, uh, we can, I already talked about how we can predict, you know, your smoking and drinking behaviors. We can go ahead and tell you, uh, you know, even things now, uh, we can diagnose schizophrenia, you know, things like schizophrenia oh, wow. previously. Yeah, they were only diagnosed could be made in an office from a psychiatrist. Now we have a molecular signature. And it's, this is what that process looks like. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, we can do a lot of really cool things, uh, you know, uh, from everywhere from predicting what zip code you've lived in most of your life due to pollution markers in your DNA um, wow. to, uh, to telling you, you know, with high accuracy what, your, what all of your blood-based biomarkers are um, based on patterns we found. Um, and, and so the, the technology is, is growing. It has limitations, but also has some features. And, and so I think together, the better, more data, the more you combine it, the more you'll learn. Did you uh, hear of that guy that that made the rounds on social media about uh, he can predict the exact day you're going to die? <laughs> uh, I, I've seen that, but without I, any I've... data, of course. Um, yeah, you it's, guys are spending like we're we're both spending like tons of money, yeah. like creating like legit products. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm a human biologist. I can predict the exact date you're going to die based on, you know, uh, 10, 20 biomarkers, yeah. blood markers or whatever. <laughs> Uh, no, that's just yeah. not possible for any test. Like no matter no. how, it's just not possible. Right. Like, yeah, no, not at all. I actually, I actually, uh, tried to reach out and, and contact him, uh, about this. Cause I was like, this is an amazing breakthrough. Just show me. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm on board. Um, and I uh, never heard back, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I think that we, whenever we create our death prediction models, um, again, 90% accuracy in 10 years, it's really good it's better than anything else that's been created before but we will never claim to have a resolution to tell you the day or even even close to the month of when you might pass right. away um you know that that, that would is, be impossible uh, that's wild impossible. yeah <laughs> yeah and, and, I mean, and so, even if you predicted a month it's all probable it would be probabilistic anyway right so it would be like certainly. okay according to this probability but it that means that you know it, it would just yeah there's no way like it just can't happen yeah, yeah. exactly you know, and, and even, you know, again, we're, we're getting okay with these predictions, but that level of resolution is just absolutely wild. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I bring it back to even our, our, our chronological age prediction. You know, whenever we first did this, we had the mean absolute error was around five years or so. So basically, we, we could be predicted chronological age within a plus or minus of five years. Now, just, to, you know, two years later, we can predict it with a margin of error of 1.2 years, which is really, really good. But, um, but, you know, we're starting to see it, 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 it sort of uh, uh, maximize out, right? It's not going to get much better at this point. That's really our margin of error because it's just this intrinsic 
uh, biology changes that happen on individual to individual. Um, and, and so, uh, so I would always be skeptical of if claims sounds too good to be true, but another reason, again, to drive back to the, to see the published study, uh, you can believe it. Right. If it, if it's 100%. Peer we're on, we're on the same page. <laughs> I, so I, w I would actually, there is a published, I, I want to talk about, uh, this published study on like, there was this researcher, Morgan Levin, I, I believe his name was. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah, did yeah. a published study on 10 lab tests and predicting the biological age for that. And there's some companies that use it. Mm -hmm. Um. I'm assuming, you know, it, it's going to be, it's obviously different than what you're doing. They're using actual lab tests and then saying, okay, people who had, you know, these mark, these, these levels at this age, this is their yeah. risk. And, and they're, they're trying to correlate it with some lab tests. How does that yeah. compare? It's a completely different test just so people are understand, but how does that accuracy compare to the, uh, true age epigenetic test? Yeah. So, so, um, so the, the answer is that the, the true age is more predictive. Um, as a standalone, but I love to talk about this because, um, so Morgan Levine, you're absolutely right. She, uh, she, her history is actually in this epigenetic space and she's probably one of the most exciting epigenetic researchers in this space. Definitely an idol of mine. Um, she started actually with Steve Horvath, who was the creator of these first blocks as a postdoc. Then she went to Yale and, and, uh, and in that process of her postdoc created this algorithm you're mentioning where she uses nine blood-based biomarkers and then also, uh, chronological age as a feature to, to predict biological age. And, and she created um, uh, first the score from just the blood-based biomarkers, but then she actually trained DNA methylation to predict that score that she got from the biomarkers. And so uh, whenever we can talk about this, we can talk about uh, both. One is a blood-based algorithm. The other one is a methylation-based algorithm, but they're based on that same data set. Um, and so we actually, in our Omicage publication, um, have showed that they, uh, we actually created the, a, a 17 blood-based biomarker um, that's around 17 times more predictive, or sorry, 17% more predictive oh. um, than, than uh, PhenoAge. So it uses a few more markers, but we trained it in a much larger group. PhenoAge was trained in around uh, 2,000 individuals. We trained ours in 60,000 individuals. Um, and uh, we took, uh, started with 61 biomarkers uh, in blood, narrowed it down to 17 to create the most predictive algorithm. And it's 17% more, more predictive. Um, and so, um, so it goes to show you two things. I think one is that, that you can still create amazing biomarkers of age prediction with just, with just blood-based, um, uh, markers. Um, but, uh, again, the more resolution, the more data points you can include into a model, the better your prediction is. And that's again, just because aging is so complex and so different and variable in everyone. And so, um, so I, I love that algorithm PhenoAge. I think that for people who have blood and don't want to spend any more on testing, it's a really good point in the right direction. Um, but, but it's not nearly as predictive as, as even our new blood-based markers. And then those even are not nearly as good as our DNA methylation versions of those blood markers. And the reason for that is because DNA methylation, um, you know, we measure around a million locations in, in the DNA, which is still a fraction of the total what we could measure. It's 29 million per cell. Um, but even with those million, we can capture elements of biology that can't be captured from single blood-based biomarkers. Um, so, uh, so by using DNA methylation, we can, in, in, in that large data set, um, all those different things we're measuring, we can start to include, um, things about all these different organ systems, your neurological function, your, your kidneys, your heart, your, your brain, your glycosylated senescence. all of these things can be featured into a more robust biomarker that's capturing a little bit of other different things. And so, um, so that's where sometimes the reason that we like DNA methylation is because uh, like genetics, you have the benefit of scale. You have the benefit of so many different markers 
they can tell you a little something. And even if it's only the fraction of bit of information, it still improves the overall prediction. Um, and, and, and so, uh, so I, I love Fino age. Fino age is, is, is limited a little bit as well, because it does use chronological age, which we found mm. that as people start to use chronological age, they're sort of biasing their algorithm already in the first place. Um, and so the newest algorithms don't incorporate age as a, as a, a, a factor. They want to just look at the biology and let that speak for itself. Um, but, uh, but, but it was definitely a good start. And actually it was really the first ever of those second generation clocks that we mentioned, those ones trained to not just to chronological age, but to other factors of aging. Okay. So the, the bottom line is I would say that you think there's validity and use to it, but you think that the, uh, true age, this Dune and Pace, uh, incorporates more factors and is more predictive when it comes down. Oh, definitively. Um, we, in the Dunedin pace, we used, uh, instead of nine, we used 21 blood related biomarkers and we tracked it longitudinally in the same patients. Um, and so for that reason, that was better in our omic age, we, uh, used, uh, you know, tens of thousands of data points, uh, from clinical biomarkers, metabolomics, proteomics, and that's capturing an even bigger amount of biology. So, so, uh, so I think you're exactly right to sum it up. I think it has utility. I think that for people who don't want to spend more on testing, it's a good place to start. But it's not the most predictive, but it's still it, it's still showing trends and, and can be informative. Is it going to be different? Like the, I, I I would assume that it's going to the prediction is going to be somewhat different. Meaning like, you're so what you're saying True Age is doing this doing it in pace is incorporating many many biomarkers. But the more biomarkers you incorporate, the more you're de-emphasizing individual biomarkers. Per, you know, in, in a certain yeah. way. So for example, let's say you're taking into account blood pressure. But that still then that but that means that you could have still a high blood pressure and a good uh, rate of aging, right? Because it's not heavily uh, focused on one area. So what you're doing is you're trying to take as broad of a, a metric as possible, but that still means that these individual metrics could still be useful in, mm -hmm. in various contexts. Yeah, you know, just I, I think a good example is let's look at HbA1c, right? Um, HbA1c might be uh, the most important marker for predicting diabetes, but it might not be the most important marker for neurodegenerative disease, or it might not be the most important marker right. for physical function. And so what we are doing when we're doing these algorithms, we're saying, hey, computer, basically take all of these different data points and let us know what is the most important for different types of outcomes. And, and for most of the age outcomes, we do choose a surrogate marker of death as a, a really good predictive marker. But we can also do it uh, in other ways uh, where we're, you know, waiting for different diseases. And, and that's where this is going eventually is much like so that, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's a really critical point, though. What you're doing is your main metric is dying, right? Mm -hmm. However, you're not like necessarily taking into account, let's say, an individual who has a very high risk in a very specific area, and then they end up dying from that specific cause, right? So like, yeah. let's say somebody has a high risk for Alzheimer's or cardiovascular disease, and then they just end up dying from that, even though they might do, be doing a whole bunch of other things that are yeah. predictive of, of good health. Um, yeah. yeah, right. you're exactly right. Yeah, and that, that is, so that, that is, uh, again, why at the, at the end of the day, one of the things that's so hard is, is to, to define aging. And sometimes you get into this circular death loop uh, of saying, you know, what is this, this, what is aging? You know, I think most people could, you know, uh, see it uh, and identify it, uh, but couldn't thoroughly describe it. And, you know, I, I always like, and again, when we first started this, there were nine hallmarks of aging. Now there's 15, right? Um, and, and so this is a, a moving concept, but the one thing we know about aging 
is it predicates and predisposes you to all other aging conditions. And so there are algorithms which train for time until death versus there are algorithms which train for comorbidities. There are algorithms which, you know, try and get more close to a health span metric than a lifespan metric. Um, and so that's why, again, whenever you're learning how to interpret these reports, you really have to learn the algorithm. And this is why validation is so important, because that's where you find out if these, this algorithm's tendencies. Is it good at predicting this or is Are it good you, at predicting this? So did you train it for health span or lifespan or both? So, so in, in the case of our omic age algorithm, we train that for lifespan. We, uh, but that Dunedin pace marker is some of the most predictive of comorbidities and quality of life because it wasn't trained um, for, uh, for lifespan. It was trained really on, um, pace of aging change. So negative change in these biomarkers from optimal. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, again, that's why it generally performs so well. Um, it's so predictive of these, these outcomes. Um, and our omic age is, is so predictive of death, for instance. Um, and, and in the case of, uh, our new, the systems age clock we're coming out with Yale, we actually train biomarkers for each organ system. So for instance, for, you know, we took liver specific biomarkers and looked at how those change over age to create this liver age. And then same with the lung or the kidneys. And, and that again, gives us more resolution. So I, th I think people would want like a big picture, like how do I integrate all this stuff? Cause there's a lot of things that people could be doing. Yeah. Right. And, and, and the way I see it, and you can tell me what, what you think, the way I see it is. You want to prevent the things that you're either you have right now, like you're dealing with some issue now. You want to solve that ideally, right? Um, mm -hmm. Especially if it's something that will lead to some kind of uh, problem. So if you have like brain fog now, your risk of Alzheimer's is probably going to go up, right? Yeah. Or some kind of neurodegenerative disease if you have a, you know, if your brain's not working at the age of like 30 or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have an issue, I feel like that is like probably the most important thing you want to resolve. Then like longer term, you want to not, you want to prevent big diseases, mm -hmm. right? So there's like that for that, that, that's what genetics, you could see, okay, what are my predispositions for different things? What, what should I prevent? And so you want to, uh, um, yeah, so that's kind of like the base. And, and so something like what we do is we match up a database of clinical trials for different things that you could do. Mm -hmm. Then you want to test. So you might have a higher genetic risk for whatever, let's say cardiovascular disease. You want to actually test all the known biomarkers that are causally related to cardiovascular disease. And there's quite a lot of them, right? So that's mm -hmm. how you test those biomarkers in order to, uh, and, and you can move uh, almost every biomarker that blood test, I feel like you can move. I've moved mm -hmm. them, right? So yeah, certainly. Um, you want to move them in the right direction. And then where this comes in is you also want to see, okay, you're, you're, you know, in, in some way, your focus should be like a little narrower in, certain, in a certain way because you want to take care of your issues. You want to prevent certain things that you might be high risk for. But on the other hand, you also want to see, okay, the totality of everything I'm doing, right? Mm -hmm. Is is that working for me or not, right? And and so that is what, um, it's it's more of a totality. I wouldn't like make huge changes based on that. But the thing is that if that totality is bad or like, hey, I'm aging at uh, a regular pace, that means that you probably should be doing something different to bring that down. Yeah. Right. De definitely. And, and I think that's where we're at now is that if you have a disease or you have a health problem, treat that first. Right. You know, but, but, right. but what we're saying with aging is that for people who are, you know, uh, uh, healthy and, and are looking to, we know that preventive medicine is the best medicine, preventing disease before it occurs. Um, and aging is just the biggest risk factor 
every chronic disease for a reason, this progressive loss of function. And so, so for anyone who is, is healthy or is, is recently, you know, overcoming some other type of health condition and now saying, what else can I do? This is really that perfect marker because if you're addressing it, you're addressing the largest part of your risk. Um, and not even by a wide margin. If we look at relative risk for the top three causes of death, we see that age is around 45% of the relative risk versus even smoking and obesity, which is like five to 7%. Right. So as we consider, you know, the, uh, the just how impactful aging as a biomarker is, this is really, really important and should certainly be quantified. But uh, in the future, DNA methylation will also be used to, to talk about disease status. So one of my favorite papers is that they can actually now uh, not just diagnose types of diabetes with DNA methylation. They can actually tell you what subtype you have, each with different recommendations for treatment and each with different risks. Uh, you know, one person might have uh, peripheral neuropathy as a problem. Other people might have um, you know, uh, other issues like, uh, you know, spots in their eyes, for instance, and we can actually now predict which subtype of diabetes you have to then make better recommendations. So DNA methylation as a biomarker is, is certainly growing to clinical use, but right now I would say it's, it's the most applicable in the aging framework. Okay. And so, um, how does, uh, how does MTHFR relate to these things? Cause I mean, I have both of the, uh, the, the, the bad variants to them. Yeah. So I'm homozygous for those uh, negative variants. How does that affect the uh, pace of aging? Do you, do you know research on that? Yeah, so, so certainly. And, and, uh, and one thing I want to mention is that a lot of people get this idea confused. When we talk about DNA methylation, a lot of people think about these MTHFR SNPs or COMT SNPs, um, and, and, and we're measuring different things, right? So if someone asks you about your ability to methylate, that is where you might want to get a genetic test. Uh, but if they're asking you about what is your status of DNA methylation, so what, what DNA is turned on and turned off, that's more of what we're looking at. But, but as you mentioned, they are related to some degree. Um, what we know, for instance, is that um, women who have the MTHFR677CC variant um, can improve their epigenetic age by about half a year in just a few weeks just by supplementing with things like methylfolate or, or folic acid or methylcobalamin. Um, and so for, but really in all the other instances of this, particularly even for men, um, we didn't find much of a difference. Um, but for women with the MTHFR677CC variant, we do recommend supplementation. And by doing that, you, you'll probably have a change in your epigenetic age relatively quickly and, and, and in a relatively big fashion. Interesting. And so um, I want to, let's say, retest again. And so how long do I need to wait in order for it to essentially reset? So like HbA1c is approximately three months, yeah. you know, um, and, and it kind of, you know, it's really only tracking the last three months. How long is this uh, pace of aging tracking? Yeah, so the pace of aging is actually can be changed very, very quickly. We've seen significant results in our trials even at four weeks. And so we actually created a lower price point test just to do the pace of aging and telomere length because that can change relatively quickly. But for most of what mm. we do and, and the big algorithms we really like, we wouldn't necessarily recommend it more than every six months. We want to make sure that whenever we see change in your metric, it's true biological change that's informing you about what to do or what you're seeing. Um, and, and sometimes in, in smaller intervals, we might not see that same resolution. So generally, we say test you know, once every six months to once every year um, to get a, a good idea of where you're going. And then um, if you really want to implement even more strategies or see what, you know, with personally working for you, we have uh, that Janine pace is rapidly changing um, and one that we recommend uh, to look at. Oh, interesting. So that changes within four weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very quickly. And, and, and yeah. Yeah. And so what was like, let's say, uh, I also know that the younger you are, the lower your pace of aging is going to be. Is that correct? 
Yeah, it so, tends to increase with age. Yeah, so um, let's say for, um, uh, so how do you know, like, you, you kind of uh, want to equalize it. Somebody who's, you know, one age is, you know, say, oh, my pace of aging is, you know, 0.6, whatever. And somebody else is like nine years old and yeah. they're 0.8. But like, how would you compare that? Yeah. So, so generally the way that we keep it, I should say first off on the reporting, we don't uh, most of the time. And the reason for that is because no matter where you are in your pace of aging, it's predictive. Uh, so for instance, even if you're at 1.01, just slightly above one, um, no matter if you're 20 or you're 80, the same risk is going to happen to you based on that absolute rate of aging. So you have a, a 56% increased risk, risk of death if you're above one, and you have a 54% increased risk of a chronic disease diagnosis. Um, and that no matter what your age is. However, if we really want to standardize this to see, you know, what or how good are you for your age? And we do this actually on, uh, we created a website called Rejuvenation Olympics. It's a leaderboard for, for people um, on this testing uh, to see who's doing the best and who's having the best reversals. And when we, when we try and standardize that as a relationship to age, we do this based on what is your predicted uh, due date and pace for a certain age. Um, so we actually use our, um, uh, that sort of that trend line that you're seeing right now. Um, and then we, we basically say, how far away from that trend line are you for your age group? Um, and so the, right. the, so here, the intrinsic so this is the trend line. This is where I, sh where you should be. And then let's say this is where I am. So it's like, correct. You look at the trend line for where you should be. Yeah. And you can see okay. it goes up over time. Um, I would also mention that in a regular, normal patient population, you'd probably see this average, um, blue line be a lot higher, uh, quite frankly. Oh, uh, so where, this is in uh, your population, this blue line. This is our population, not, um, I would oh, say, okay. a normal right, population. That's important to, that's yeah. important to know. Because I'm yeah, like, okay, I'm means, pretty good. It, it actually no, means but, I'm better yeah. because this is among mm -hmm. people who are pretty healthy already. Oh, exactly. Some of the, some of the healthiest people in the world, quite frankly. Um, and so, yeah, you know, the, so if we look at here, you know, right around 50 years of age, um, you know, the average pace of aging for us is still a good bit below one. Whereas in that Dunedin Pace cohort, which created this algorithm, the average of 50 was around one. Um, and, and so we're oh, wow. seeing, you know, differences, average differences around, you know, 0.12 um, ish from, from more normal patient population. Um, and, and so, yes, that's one thing. The first thing I usually tell people as we review the results is don't be too hard on yourself when you look at the population because you're competing with <laughs> the healthy people in the world. You're competing with me. I'm taking like 150 <laughs> supplements a day. <laughs> Exactly. Um, exactly. Well, what, how much? So I, 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 I was trying to estimate like every year is point what change in, in terms of like, if I'm trying to yeah. compare it to somebody who's older or younger, like I want to make that calculation. Okay. You're 50. So you're going to be 0.5 higher than me or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, to be honest with you, I don't know the, the trend line of that slope, that Y equals MX plus B formula. But I can get it for you. I can tell you uh, what that average slope is. So you could even just plug in okay. the diff difference in years and calculate what that uh, that average increase is going to be. Yeah. And, and I feel like on that uh, Rejuvenation Olympic site, it should actually take that into account. Probably We do. We do. Oh, you do? Yeah, okay. we do. We use that. We use that trend line um, and uh, say what is your Dunedin pace versus your predicted Dunedin pace for your age. Oh, okay. I got it. Oh, okay. yeah. So it's the difference that is what makes you 
uh, Correct. We were not. Yeah. So, so again, uh, we want to absolutely, none of these things can actually go too low. The lower you are, the better in almost all of them. Uh, but, but as we're, you know, if we, if we had a leaderboard of Dunedin Pace, uh, and we didn't segment by age, then everyone on the leaderboard would be 20, 18 years of age. Right. Right? Um, <laughs> and, and so that's not very helpful for anyone. And so we do factor this into account by, by talking about that trend line and what your predicted age would be versus your actual age. And so that's the way we standardize right. it and make sure that we only, we don't just have 18 year olds on the leaderboard. So these can change pretty dramatically within four weeks. That means that you, you really sh do need to like take it a few times in order to see really what your value is, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, these, they, they tend to be pretty consistent. You know, there are a few things we know which can cause pretty massive changes in this. One is pregnancy. Um, you know, pregnancy mm -hmm. will, 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 will have women's rate of aging go pretty high up to the 1.3s um, generally. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, same with, uh, so same with even recent surgery. If you've gone under surgery and anesthesia, we see elevations for about two weeks um, in, until after stopping surgery. And then another- What if you really had well, COVID or- Yeah, that's, that, that was my next whatever. one. That was my next okay. one. So COVID also increases this rate of aging for about two weeks before normalizing back okay. to where you were previously. Uh, and so, so all that to say that uh, if you're doing a test and you're worried, hey, I'm, I had this major event in the past couple of weeks, just wait maybe two weeks and then it should normalize. Um, and uh, you can always test again. But, uh, uh, but, but yeah, you know, there are some factors which will cause that transiently to increase um, just high period, basically high periods of stress um, or, or stress on your body. Okay. So what was like the best score you've ever seen here? So I've seen that, I think a 0.58 um, here before. Um, but, you know, even on the rejuvenation Olympics, we, we make a, we, we make it a mandatory rule to have at least three tests over a minimum of six months. And we okay. say that so that people can't game the system. We want, we, we want the senior board to be real and actionable and, and also provide us really good data. Um, and so uh, I think uh, currently the best average um, on that rejuvenation leaderboard, I think it's 0.71. Um, and, and so, you know, if you were to perform, you know, like this on your next two tests, you, you would probably be in the top five of that leaderboard. Okay, that's nice. And where's Brian Johnson uh, on that leaderboard? Yeah, so I think that he's sixth overall, um, you know, he, but he, he's number one in, in relative change. Um, so he mm. started with a rate of aging of 1.01 and then was able to reverse that to oh, 0.69. Wow. Yeah, so wow. he, he went down significantly in his rate of aging. The thing is, is that um, I, I, didn't, I didn't get a chance to do this test before I started taking yeah. 100. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you didn't have a good baseline to, you know, to see what's working. But, but yeah, so and actually, we're actually about to do another Rejuvenation Olympics update tomorrow. Um, and on the new leaderboard, actually, five people have beat Brian in terms of the relative change. Um, and so we actually have somebody that went from, Point one, uh, 1 1.2 to 0.89. Um, and, and so some another okay. pretty big change there. Um, you know, we have, uh, but, so but I, I feel like the difference is not, I mean, it's, it's a useful metric, but at the end of the day, uh, I feel like a lot of people doing this test, me included yeah. have already been doing things for a while. So I'd basically have to like, you know, just stop everything, not exercise, well, like, <laughs> you know, take the test. Oh, <laughs> well, so that, that's why we have two leaderboards. One is the biggest change, biggest improvement. And then the other one is the best overall result. Um, uh, and, and so that way, uh, you know, we don't have people gaming the system, make it, you know, smoking, you know, 10 packs a day for a couple of weeks to get their first metric and then, you know, stopping and, and then, you know, trying to improve their health and having the best score. Uh, so we do have two leaderboards, um, for that reason. I want to go into some of the things that can improve this, but before we do, um, I, I don't, 
I'm, I doubt you're going to know the answer to this, but have you done any research on thyroid hormones and mm. the dude in pace value? So we haven't. Um, and and uh, so in, in our in our newer algorithms, the omic age algorithm I mentioned, we we do include um, thyroid measurements, uh, but it didn't register as significant. Um, and in this pace of aging, that was not included. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Um, the, what about even was that including free T3? Because free free T3 actually shows some good predictive value in terms of um, yeah, you know, like reducing mortality. Yeah. So. It, uh, yes, uh, we, we did include uh, hormone levels in, in our Harvard omic age cohort. Um, and although testosterone actually was not selected, but one of the precursors of testosterone, um, interesterone, was included, uh, which also drops with oh, age. Which also, um, uh, you know, so, so we, we know that uh, hormone loss with age is a driving factor of aging biology. It's why we selected some of it. Uh, but that was selected over testosterone in particular, or even pre-testosterone. Pre um, but we also had you other said things that's like androstenedione or, or did I... uh, androsterone. Yeah. Um, Androste that's uh, different than androstenedione. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And, um, uh, but it's just one of, you know, one of those precursors. Um, and, and so we did see it as, as relevant, um, you know, when, and we included in that model, uh, everything you could possibly imagine. We didn't just include, you know, testosterone and free testosterone. We also included sex hormone binding globulin, IGF-1, IGF-1 binding globulin, two IGF-1. Uh, you know, binding protein three, we used to, we, we measured over uh, 28,000 peptides and proteins. Um, we measured over 3,200 metabolites, including most of those, including neurotransmitters and gut microbiome metabolites, um, the whole nine yards to see what was selected out. We ended up collecting 36 different variables um, that were included into our final algorithm. Um, and, and so, uh, so we did take a lot of that into account into our newest uh, algorithm, but not everything was selected as, as the most predictive or important. Okay. Now let, let's talk a little bit before we get into what we can do to lower our pace of aging. Let's get into uh, a little bit what this extrinsic age, I, I feel like it's yeah. not uh, the best title. It's, it's like yeah. really your immune system age, right? Yeah, certainly. Immune system age is the best way to describe it. And I, I do hate to mention that both of those intrinsic and extrinsic ages will be removed from our platform next week and replaced with this new omic age that we're talking about. Because as okay. you mentioned, this is a this the naming and convention here is a little outdated and, and quite frankly a little confusing um and, and we did it to maintain scientific accuracy but now there are better mm -hmm. methods and so we're going to be updating um but be right we, this is basically immune age and this goes back to that problem i was talking about about immune cell subsets and how someone has a change in in one immune cell it can drastically change their epigenetic aging um, and so on that intrinsic age, we control for immune cells so that, so that your change in immune cells is not going to impact your age. That's why we call that intrinsic age sort of your body's mm. age. Um, whereas with this extrinsic age, we don't control for immune cell subsets. And so, okay. um, so it's really measuring how your immune system is doing rather than just how your overall body is doing. Um, so let, and, let's just go through that a little bit. How is my immune system doing? I mean, it looks excellent. good from yeah. the look of it, but I have no idea. Yeah, so a couple things to note here is that, that for most people, we would expect their extrinsic age to be around eight years younger than their intrinsic, is what we typically okay. see. Um, but for you- Among a healthy look, population. Correct, correct. And if you look at yours, um, there's another thing. On that population level graph, you're, you're way below that midline, um, which, is, which is a good thing, but it's especially good because you're a man. Uh, men age worse than women across the board. Um, in, in our, our new reports, we actually have this population level graph separated into men and women. So you can have a better comparison because women just age much, much better. 
Um, so, so you're doing well, period, for the entire population, but you're also doing extremely well for a male in this population. Um, and, and so that puts you probably in the top 10% of people your age for this particular immune score. The other thing, though, we like to look at here is because we can read out your immune percentages, if you look at your CD, we, we, we like to also look at the CD4 to CD8 T cell ratio. Um, if I took and, a blood test, this is exactly what I would get, or this is just a prediction of what I would get? It's a prediction, but it's a prediction that has the same accuracy as flow cytometry. We have less than a 0.3% error versus classical Okay, flow so it's just as good as a blood test. Got it. Yeah, we just published that in Genome Medicine with uh, Harvard and Johns Hopkins. Um, but, but yeah, you know, we can quantify immune cell percentages with the same accuracy as flow cytometry, and that's a $6 billion industry. They need a lot of blood and they need it refrigerated, where mm -hmm. we just need a drop and I can have the same resolution. We can't give you your absolute cell counts. So we can't tell you how much mm -hmm. of, you know, how much total, but we can tell you the relative percentage um, by looking at unique signatures in that epigenome that are different among each cell type. So uh, again, as your cells go from pluripotent stem cells to these different immune cells, they each do so by having expression of different epigenetic signatures, different on or off switches. And so we can look in this, uh, you know, entire, um, we can look at this entire thing uh, to be able to see what percentage of what cell type you have with really high resolution. And so for you, we also culminate this in the CD4 to CD8. We want this to be, be between one and four. And as we get older, this tends to drop. You know, and this is the reason we have this immunosenescence process. It's why people who are older get vaccines first because their immune system slowly degrades over time. Um, and they are less able to mount a response. But where you're at here is where exactly where we want. We'd be, usually for most people, they're between you know, one and 2.5, um, and you're exactly where we would want you to be. So, so based on your immune aging, your extrinsic age, and that CD4 subset, you look like your immune system is aging very, very well. Okay, that's, that's good to know. And uh, okay, so that's this. Now let's talk about how do we uh, reduce the pace of aging? Let's, yeah. uh, you could bring up some slides or whatever you want to do, um, or you can yeah, just talk happy through to. it. Yeah, I'd love to okay. bring up uh, just a few slides, if you don't mind, um, because there are two ways that we talk about interventions um, here, um, and, and I want to describe both of them. The first one that we always try and, and share to people is, um, again, talking about publication, talking about validation. Uh, we also like to share this. Um, so if anyone needs this, they can always reach out to me. But this is a full list of every interventional trial that's ever been done on biological age. Oh, great. So this looks at um, a baseline measurement. So people take a baseline, they start a procedure, and then they measure again to look at the outcome of that. And so, um, so we've got a lot of data here. And, and so, but I hate to say it, a lot of the things that you'll see here are relatively intuitive, things that you probably should know or, or be doing already. Right. Um, and and so, uh, so a lot of this is not groundbreaking, but now we're actually starting to get to really unique um, recommendations um, and, and procedures. So I can always send this. And again, the things you see here are, you know, making sure you're eating a non-processed food diet. You know, Mediterranean diets are very, very popular and work very well. Um, we see, um, you know, don't have, don't do bad behaviors, right? So that means you should exercise, you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't drink, you should reduce stress as much as possible. Stress is surprisingly a major impact on some of these markers, you know, not to, to get a consistent and effective sleep. And for the sleep data, it's actually really interesting. It's not the total amount of time you sleep or even the separation between REM and deep sleep. It's the lack of insomnia symptoms that actually is the biggest driver of oh, this. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. So making sure that it doesn't necessarily matter how many hours you get, but making sure that it's consistent and high quality sleep is, is the way to go. 
Um, and then again, here you can see that that folic acid and vitamin B12 study I mentioned for MTHFR patients, particularly those women who have an MTHFR 677CC variant. Um, but, but, but really, you know, these again, this data set's all. And is that me methylfolate they gave or folic acid? That was just folic acid, but we see the same with methylfolate as well. And it tends to be uh, and any. Does even it not help guys, the methylfolate? It doesn't. Um, does you know, not. generally. Uh, um, you know, it might have been it, it might have been a limitation of the study that they didn't dose it in high enough quantities for men. Um, but uh, but we didn't see it affects right here. And we're also doing again other things now. We're we're looking at hyperbaric. We're looking at stem cells, exosomes. We're looking at synolytic strategies. We're looking at um, a whole host of different things. Um, and we'll be able to report on these very soon. So this is growing. For instance, our okay. So let's yeah. So yeah. let's look at the the things that are kind of studied, and then let's we could go to some of the things that are not studied, yeah. but you, well, you might see a correlation in your population if you could share that or not. Yeah, certainly. And so th this is the other, I, that, to answer your, I mean, it's a good segue um, here because what this PowerPoint does is sort of summarizes all of the cross-sectional data that we might see. Um, so this is basically what are the trends if we look at multiple different cohorts? You know, what are the trends we see for better or worse aging? And again, this is, can sometimes be pretty intuitive, right? Um, so if we look at some of the things that have dri driven these algorithms in the past, we can look at, you know, the big impacts of smoking, depression, and lung function measurement, right? So like VO2 max, uh, as we've already talked about. You know, if we look at even some of these, and I'll try and make it a little bit bigger so everyone but can see. But in, in that one, you're saying uh, you see smoking actually had a bigger effect than VO2 max. Oh yeah, definitely. Smoking, um, smoking is huge uh, because some of the epigenetic changes would happen with smoking are irreversible. Um, so, for instance, we can tell you how much you, if you're a current former never smoker, based on changes that will never revert in your genome, based on some of those behaviors. Um, and so, uh, even so, you if know, you so, smoked, how much? Like, I probably smoked like twenty packs in my life. Yeah, so probably not there. You know, that that's probably equivalent to some of the pollution markers we get, or even secondhand okay. smoke markers that we get. Uh, but, but smoking obviously plays a major impact. And, and again, here you can sort of see some of these other factors and the directionalities. You can see, you know, we have associations with BMI, alcohol usage. We see physical activity being protective, um, you know, and, and so we're seeing a lot of these different things. Um, you know, I also, if you don't mind, would love to bring up one more thing, which is from our, but I can send this PowerPoint when we talk about some of the things. I also have probably a list of about seven recommendations that work for everyone. So I'd love to give those seven recommendations that generally work let's, for everyone. Let's quickly go through the seven. I bet they're going to be like, yeah. don't smoke, sleep well, exercise. Yeah, exactly. So, well, so all those know, lifestyle eat things. Eat some vegetables. Yeah, all those lifestyle things for certain. Don't be also, overweight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so generally, um, uh, there are a couple of things that everyone can do to change and, and have improvement. Um, one is caloric restriction. I already talked about this, but caloric restriction does work to reverse these epigenetic age biomarkers. Um, so... Give us a, yeah. a magnitude of like, okay, so let's say I yeah. do 10% caloric restriction. What, what kind of uh, change can I expect? Yeah, so 10% uh, caloric restriction will probably reverse your epigenetic uh, pace of aging over the course of, uh, we, we, did a, we did our study over the course of, um, uh, with, it was a, the calorie study actually done by uh, Daniel Belsky from Columbia, um, published in Nature about, I guess now, seven months ago. Um, showed that um, on average that you can reverse your Dunedin pace by around 0.12 um, over the course of a year by just doing 10% caloric restriction. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Is significant. So yeah, I wasn't doing caloric restriction. So let's say for me, for example, I could go from 0.72 to 0.6, let's say, if I did 10% yeah. caloric restriction. 
Correct. Yeah. And, and so that could, that could help, but you know, for someone who's already pretty good on that rate of aging, you're probably not going <laughs> to see the same benefits as someone who's not. Um, so, but, but caloric restriction and, and also things that work, you know, caloric restriction, uh, it's been hypothesized to work by inhibiting mTOR, uh, you know, this really good, you know, uh, mechanism for longevity. So we also like other things that work on that enzyme, like rapamycin, for instance, methionine restriction, all of those tend to have positive impacts. So I would put okay. all of those three. Yeah. Quick question. What on the list do you not do? Of um, the things so, that improve it. That's the, yeah. If you, if you don't mind sharing, we, <laughs> yeah. We no, I, I I'm I'm an open book. I'm happy to okay. share. But I also uh, I also tend to to switch things up a little bit. I, I use myself as a right. way to to learn a little bit. Um. So, but there, you know, the biggest thing for me, and 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 I I joke about this a lot because I was one person who did not believe in meditation or mindfulness or stress exercise. I, I always used to think, am I doing this right? When I'm sitting there or <laughs> same you know, as those me. Things. Yeah. And, and so it was really hard for me to say, I, I like this as an intervention, but I've met, I've done the biggest um, reversal in how I treat mindfulness, meditation, stress reduction. Uh, there've been multiple studies that show even your ability to control your emotions are highly predictive of your epigenetic aging. Um, and, and so, uh, so if there's one big reversal thing that, that I've done, it is, uh, you know, I, I, I started to do, you know, hot yoga as a way to, um, to, to spend some time doing some mindfulness and meditation and, 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 and definitely it's reversed my, my epigenetic aging. And I see this across the board. Stress. What, do you, what kind of magnitude did you, did you see? Yeah. So, so, uh, basically that, that big improvement, um, in my biological age from baseline, you know, the, the was mainly from that. Older, so like, not... I, I would say, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, but I also, you know, a big believer in some supplements like vitamin D, DHEA, um, you know, alpha ketoglutarate, those, uh, have been shown to have some pretty positive effects. Um, you know, metformin has been shown to have positive effects. Um, uh, we, uh, DHEA sub, what do you, do you like look at your numbers before you supplement with DHEA? So I didn't. Um, and in the cohorts we've looked at, um, mainly it's been a, a cross-sectional analysis. So the answer is we haven't really quantified where someone should be versus where they are. Um, but we do know that DHEA has tended to be positive. Omega-3s uh, are generally positive. So a lot of these supplements that are relatively common um, are tend to be pretty positive. But I would say that definitely uh, one of the surprises is lithium. Lithium supplementation at 10 milligrams. I take that. Yeah, it tends to be ten really milligrams. Good. Okay, ten milligrams. Yeah, so a small dose, right? Um, I and, think five and, milligrams. Five milligrams. That's that's good as well. Yeah, but I, and then so those have been some surprises. We also in our new Omicage identified two other supplements, which um, which tend to be protective, and that's uridine. That's a product that generally increases. I take that mental function. I'm surprised that one's a rare, that one's a rare one. Um, and then another one is carotene diol. Uh, it also goes under the name lutein. Um, and oh, I take uh, that too. Yeah, generally used for eye function, but um, we've seen these carotenoids uh, tend to be very protective in, in that process as well. I'm surprised that uridine had a big effect. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's not, it's really not well talked about, uh, but there are multiple studies on aging showing that you can reverse intestinal aging. And that's actually one of the major metabolites, which is increased in recovery and repair in a lot of animals and in stem cell activation, but, it, you know, especially salamanders as they're regrowing you know, tails and things, uridine is, is a pretty important metabolite. And, and so the DHEA, just to go back, cause DHEA is, is in my list of like, I don't know if I should keep it or take it out. I kind of want to, I, I put, I actually put it in because my DHEA was low in the beginning, but then I read that thyroid hormones, uh, can increase DHEA and pregnenolone. And so, uh, I thought maybe like I'm, I'm increasing my thyroid hormone levels naturally with like herbs and stuff. And so I'm trying to see if that's going to increase my DHEA. Uh, but 
what like I, I'm trying to understand how you like how you work with that. You don't like because you don't you're not testing for it. You're just taking it because it it should like is it the higher levels the better? I feel like it should be in a range. Yeah, so so you're exactly right, which is why we've developed, uh, you know, this and this is so this is our new omic age, and this is what I mentioned. You know, the testing that you you received from us, you didn't get the why, right? You didn't tell about what was driving your aging process, but now we can actually read out these individual markers. So, for instance, I can tell you out of all the clinical values that we predict, what is increasing your aging versus what is decreasing. Your uh -oh. aging. Um, and I can do the same with proteins, and I can do the same with metabolites. And so what we can start uh -oh. to do is start to quantify which system in your body might be having the uh, the worst versus best aging. But then also so I'll get this on my next test. Yeah. So you'll get this. And then, for oh, instance, awesome. we'll actually even read out to you these factors. So we'll actually be able to tell you where your hemoglobin is, your creatinine, your hematocrit, and where you stand in that population. Um, and this is just for the clinical values. We also do it for these metabolites. Um, uh, so, you know, here's uridine, for instance. We'd actually quantify your relative level to see if it's even something you need to consider from a supplementation perspective. Or, or we can do it with carotene. Um, or, you know, in plas uh, plasmologens, uh, which is, you know, something common lately. We can do it with, um, you know, a variety of things like cysteine. Or, again, here's your androsterone um, sulfate as a factor which was included. Um, and so we can tell you about a lot of these and the processes which they're implicating. Um, so now we can give you a little bit more of the why um, to make personalized recommendations to really stop, uh, you know, that aging process as much as possible. Okay, so uh, albumin, let's see, it uh, it's 0.1, it's not... I yeah, well, al albumin is actually one of the highest weighted out of all of these. Um, okay. And so here you can see, uh, so these are the factors here which are associated with improvements in omic age, and albumin is the highest weighted. Um, albumin seems to be very, very important um, so because it's able to. What does that mean, it. though? If it's higher, yeah. it's, it's so if the it's higher, lower, it's yeah, yeah. Go for the, it. So the higher the albumin, the better, um, essentially. Um, right. You know, an albumin tends to decrease with age, um, and so uh, an albumin itself is predictive of mortality, just as a standalone feature. Um, but right. uh, but with that being said, you know, here you can again, you can HbA1c. This is a negative thing. You want your HbA1c to be lower. You want your creatinine to be lower. You want your blood free nitrogen to be lower. Um, whereas you want your hematocrit, your your uh, hemoglobin, and your albumin to be higher. Yeah, I, you want wait, wait, hema that's a little okay. So I've actually done research on biomarkers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> talking to someone who's looked at the research and all this stuff, and and I would say that that the research for albumin HbA1c, like the research, also you know shows higher albumin the better. I would say uh, for all these. It's accurate, although I wonder why triglyceride doesn't seem to have any effect. It's a um, very small effect size. Yeah. Yeah. But I would say the, 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 the two that are different than what you would see in the research. You know what? Okay. So hemoglobin, if it's too low, it's a big problem. Huge problem, right? Because mm -hmm. you're not getting oxygen to all your cells. That it, I wonder if it's, but if it's too high, it's also it a problem. Actually, yeah. <laughs> cardiovascular disease because it thickens the blood. Correct. Correct. And and there are same with hematocrit. Yeah. And so some of these things are not linear. Um, I should also mention, okay, right? That's what I wanted um, to ask. Yeah. yeah. So so um, and that's that's you know the, the crux of everything. Every biomarker is that generally there's probably going to be uh, a level that's too high and a level that's too low, right? Um, and, and so uh, so so these are not always linear. And in, in new approaches to these algorithms, this will only get better. Um, but, uh, but, but, but yes, uh, so, so in the future, we'll be able to tell you, 
um, I would say about 60 to 70% of what you get on your current lab testing, all with just methylation as an output. And some things we can predict very well, others we can't at all. Um, so for, you know, for instance, uh, that triglycerides, uh, one of the reasons that our triglycerides is, is so lowly weighted is because our prediction model is not very good for triglycerides uh, with DNA methylation. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not very accurate in our prediction for, for triglycerides. Um, and whereas we can be very accurate for our lung function things like FVD1 or VO2 max, for instance. And so some processes don't always, uh, are not always manifested in methylation. Um, and in those cases, generally, they might not be represented, but those tend to be few and far between. Uh, triglycerides is one, but senescence is another one that we really haven't figured out a signature for. Interesting. Um, so let's see, let's go down a little bit. Let's just see yeah. some of the other. So I, I like all those blood tests. I mean, that actually goes really well with the lab analyzer because you can actually upload it. It'll tell you what your optimal range is for each of them and how to uh, optimize it, it, those. Exactly. And so, yeah, Joe, you're right up my line of thinking. And that's why I think we love your platform so much. Um, uh, because, you know, these are just the 36 that were selected for this aging algorithm. But we can do uh, everything from your alpha ketoglutarate and your spermidine levels, your vitamin D, your vitamin C, your vitamin E. We can quantify all oh, of wow. those. Just DNA methylation nice. alone. Yeah. 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 I'm not going to really take a blood test for that. Yeah, exactly. We can do ergothionine. We can do your ketone Ooh. metabolites. We can do yeah, your, uh, yeah, so we can do a lot here um, that, that I think would be a really good fit with your platform and report. Uh, so cysteine, is that, um, you want to get that lower? Yeah, so or cysteine is, so this is one of the surprises. Cysteine was actually shown um, to be a negative influence. You want lower cysteine. Um, which was, you know, most people think of supplementing even cysteine or cysteine as a way to be an almost like a, a anti-toxicity type of product to right. increase your glutathione and, and, and things of that nature. But we actually saw a negative weight here, um, which is, uh, it, you know, gives us some questions, but it might be to, you know, that, uh, things we want to convert away from cysteine into these other markers a little bit better. Um, and, 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 and so some right. of these require... Um, you know, some, some more thorough But also, I wonder if, if this cysteine is different than the other sustain that yeah. you're taking N-acetylcysteine, which is like, or yeah. somebody would be, right? That's not, different. Not, yeah. Not. Slightly different though. Um, it's slightly different than what we're measuring here, I should say. Um, but yeah, most people will be taking, you know, the N-acetylcysteine or they might just be taking the cysteine as it's more bioavailable. Um, but, uh. But so, yeah, so, the, you know, there are some questions here as well, because some of these things you take Ribidol, for instance, Ribidol is the only thing that's weighted higher than albumin. And there are about two studies published on Ribidol, um, you know, and, and so we don't know why this was included so much. Generally, the studies that have been what is Rib like, can yeah. you ingest Ribidol? You or? can. So it's part of, uh, I should say, uh, you know, several pathways in your body, but particularly, um, you know, some, uh, I would think some glycolysis-related pathways and energy production pathways. Um, and, and so, uh, but, but again, if you look in the, if you were to search Ribitol, you'd find almost nothing about it uh, clinically. Um, and so we don't know why it was selected, but the weight is higher than anything. Um, and so we had to include it. The only other paper out there that has Ribitol in it is a paper which did a very similar approach, which basically asked which of these metabolites are predictive of longevity, and it selected Ribitol as well. Interesting. Okay. Quick question for you. How many supplements do you take a day? <laughs> a lot. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite like Brian and, and you know, over a uh, hundred, but I'll, I'll probably, I think, you know, I, I tend to be worried about even mixing because, um, you know, you might have different effects as you mix, but I'll also take, I would say about 14 to 15. Okay. Interesting. 
And yeah. <laughs> and so, and which ones are you taking because it's lowering your your methylation age? Yeah, alpha ketoglutarate. Yeah, alpha ketoglutarate. Okay. Uh, vitamin D. Um, I do like uh, you know vitamin uh, K two and E. Um, I like uh, vitamin this K2 is just for... will help uh, pace of aging. Oh, so this is just for me. This is all N of one single uh, anecdotal study, not a meta analysis, not not something I would tell everyone to go out and take. Um, but uh, you know, vitamin D is one of those that has multiple studies. Um, right. You know, alpha ketoglutarate doesn't really have any good studies in in methylation, but I'm a I'm a believer in it for all the other studies that exist on it. Um, you know, omega three fatty acids. Uh, you know, I'm a believer in. Um, you know, I will take uh, sulforaphane. Um, I'll. You know, I'm a big fan of that one. Um, so I think that those lithium, as I already mentioned, uh, uridine, um, now carotene dial, those are on my list. Um, I take a couple, a couple other for uh, more performance related things, which sometimes might conflict with biological aging. But I think you sometimes need to maximize quality of life and uh, right. overall life. So, so there's a lot there, but uh, but hopefully that's a good well, starting. What do you take, like uh, testosterone replacement or? Yeah, so 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 uh, certainly started that actually just relatively recently. Um, but, uh, but in addition to that, I'll do, um, uh, I have a couple other sort of, uh, branded products uh, that I like that I, you know, I, I won't necessarily do a shout out on, but, uh, thanks for, you know, um, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, nitric oxide and, and vasodilation and, uh, blood, you know, blood flow. So, so there's a couple of things I take there. Also my background's in peptides. So a big peptide user as well. Oh, interesting. Okay. I've never really, like I've taken peptides of course, but never got big into it. No clinical trials. Yeah, I've got I've got uh, a database with about uh, sixty thousand clinical peptide trials. If you ever want to look, seriously. Um, yeah, I've got uh, probably more data on peptides. Uh, I can send you the folder if you ever want to go through. What, so what? Tell me. Okay, let's. Uh, I guess we'll go a little off track. But what kind of peptides do you take? With, you yeah. Know, um, I, I could probably spend all day talking about this. Um, but I'll, I'll just. But like, maybe, what do well, you take? Your how many yeah. are you taking? Like, so I'll probably, taking, you know I. I, I I'll probably take two or three, um, uh, okay. you know, on at any one time. Um, but my one, one of my my favorite is the uh, SS31, the mitochondrial peptide that, uh, and this is not hyperbole. This is a direct quote from a clinical trial. But one injection of this product, SS31, is the, the equivalent in ATP of six months of daily endurance training exercise. Um, and uh, wow. and so big fan of that one. It helps in. Uh, just about every condition because you're just increasing and improving your mitochondria and your mitochondria are needed for everything you do. Right. So, um, so, uh, and how do you get it? Out. How does somebody, how, how does somebody... <laughs> I'll have to, though, unfortunately the regulatory routes for some of these things have closed. There are still pharmacies who do it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I won't, won't make any recommendations beyond go to your physician and see if you can find it. <laughs> right. Okay. But, but yeah. there are physicians that can order it. There, there are. Yeah, certainly. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And and so what else? Um, oh, interest. Like that's right. OK, yeah. what else do you take? So uh, new world for me, I guess. I, yeah. I, I don't know a lot about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't necessarily want to be too controversial. On a lot of these things. But, um, you know, I, I am not diabetic or pre-diabetic. Um, but um, I also like uh, some of these things like GLP ones, uh, these peptides like semaglutide. Um, oh, people interesting. know them as these weight loss drugs. Um, I think that they have some longevity benefits and, and having a mat optimized HbA1c and fasting insulin for me is very important. Um, so I, I will take that, uh, you know, it's sort of a relatively lower doses than what most people would be using, but, um, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of them as well. Um, What's and, your uh, HbA1c like now? 
Yeah, so my HP1C is is around five or four point eight, um, and and so it's pretty good. Um, uh, but I want to keep it as optimal as possible. Okay, interesting. So you want to keep it like below five? Yeah, yeah, certainly for anti-aging um, purposes. Yeah, and, and you know, there's some other uh, I would say medications I really like in that area. Um, you know, there there's a uh, the SGL two inhibitors like uh, canagliflozin or empagliflozin. Those help you basically pee out your glucose. They make your kidneys permeable um, that I really like. They've been studied in, in uh, the ITP trials on, on mice. It's one of the very few things to extend life, but also have some other benefits, um, such as increasing, you know, some of the, the, the uh, short chain fatty acids in the gut and some other things. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so I, I'll do a lot of things to experiment. But, um, but you know, they're, they're, again, I, I don't think that, you know, much like we talked about with Brian Johnson, you know, you don't necessarily need to spend $2 million to have improvements <laughs> in biological age. You can do even simple and easy things. And so I don't want to overwhelm you... people with what I do uh, whenever they can. No, 100%. This things. is like yeah. kind of the bonus. I, I think we went through <laughs> the, the main things I wanted to go through. This is more like the bonus part of, of the yeah. episode. <laughs> but when you took SS31, did you feel like, like, whoa? I didn't. Um, and, and to be honest with you, one of the things about SS31 is it has better effects the older you are, because what it's really correcting is, is you know, so our mitochondria has two membranes, one outer membrane, and then everyone's seen that curved inner membrane that, that looks just wavy. Um, and as we get older, much like a t-shirt you wash too many times, where the neck slowly separates and gets loose, the thing with that inner mitochondria membrane is that those curved structures slowly start to get further and further away. And when they do, those electron transport chains become less efficient because it has to take all of these things so much further, even just in space. Um, and so what the SS31 does is it takes those loose mitochondrial membranes and makes them really tight again. And that pushes that electron transport chain so close together and makes energy production even more optimized. Um, and so for me, I was probably a little too young to feel anything, but I've seen it work in so many other people. And I'm such a believer of the mechanism. Having optimal mitochondria is so important for everything that we do. Okay, I feel like I need to learn more about this whole peptide industry because yeah. it, it, I, I, I always felt like you, I wanted to go with things that were more fundamental first. And I felt like, I think, okay, so first I optimize my diet, my lifestyle. Then I'm, you know, I've been in a long supplement phase of, of trying to optimize that. And that's like a massive field because there's like thousands of supplements on the market. So yeah. Me trying everyone, megadosing everyone, looking at all the mechanisms and how they're working and what's going on. Um, like that takes a while, right? I've done like four megadosing experiments yeah. in uridine. I've been taking it on and off for a number of years. I mean, I, I started taking that like uh, 12 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it, okay. So, but let's, uh, and, and I just felt like, um, yeah, like the, the peptides I wanted to save, like, okay, once I'm done with all the things that are like more fundamental, like nutrients, yeah. I, I, I discovered a, a lot of nutrients and yeah. amino acids that I needed more of. Yeah. Or, and I, you know, I, and, I, and, I, yeah. I think your approach is certainly a good one. Um, right. Uh, because, you know, one of the things also about the peptides is traditionally in the past, they have very short mechanisms of half-life. And so oftentimes from a cost efficacy perspective, you know, the, the peptides may be the last thing you want to add because they're probably the most expensive for sometimes marginal benefit. Um, right. But, but they're, they're always exceptions to that rule, um, and especially as these peptides get better in terms of class. So, but I think your approach is certainly the right one, um, especially because there's so much more data, as you mentioned, on nutrition, um, you know, and, and optimal nutrition rather than um, some of these peptides, which are very, very new. Yeah, and I think people can take away, like, you know, if you're not doing the basics, if you're smoking, if you're not exercising, every day 
and, and diversifying your exercise. If you're not, uh, if you don't have a good diet, forget about supplements, forget about everything else. You know, it's like, that's already, you know, I, I would, I would put like a hierarchy, you know, there's like, okay, diet lifestyle top, right. Then you have, um, supplements. Then you would have, uh, maybe, uh, certain pharmaceuticals that would really help you. Uh, and then you might go with certain peptides that are, are more novel once you like really exhausted all the other, uh, avenues. But, um, I wanted to talk about two things and, and then we'll, we'll end it there. Metformin and rapamycin. So those were two things that I, I heard somewhere that you found, uh, lowered the pace of aging. Is that, is that true or not true? So, um, I should mention that, that studies on both have not yet been created. Um, so, uh, there's about to be though, a study which shows metformin reverses all of the epigenetic age clock. Um, and that's going to be coming out of Cornell. Um, so, so mm -hmm. I think that it's safe to say that yes, and that was not in diabetic populations. That was then. Um, you know, patients that, that didn't have diabetes as a mechanism, that was a particularly a big issue. Um, so I think that's important. Um, on rapamycin, I can tell you that in our cross-sectional analysis, we certainly see benefit, but again, no study has been published. And, and we are doing a controlled study right now where we're taking, you know, naive patients, putting them on rapamycin and then looking at outcomes, but we haven't analyzed that data yet. So when right, I say rapamycin, the, the people yeah. who are taking rapamycin are just the most hardcore people like Brian Johnson exactly. and me and... Yeah, whatever, and right? And, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and so I was so, about uh, to ask you. Yeah, <laughs> and and so so yeah, so I think it's still early. Metformin, I can say very confidently, probably has some positive effects on these biological aging clocks. Do you um, take and metformin? I, can also, I don't, um, I, and only because I'm on the GLP ones and the SGL2 inhibitors, which um, are having, uh, uh, I would say, an anti-diabetic effect already. Um, uh, and and some of the side effects with metformin, I don't agree with me. Um, and, and so, uh, for, for that reason, I, I, stuff or the gut GI stuff. Yeah. Um, more so GI. than anything. And so I, I the tend slow to, release uh, as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and so I, I tend to favor other, other medications in that same area. Like I said, the GLP ones, the SGLT, um, but, uh, but, it, but again, I, I think I, I, I certainly see the benefit of metformin. Um, uh, and, and so, so that being said, uh, yeah, a carbo. So ew, another good one, again, again, just talking about, you know, increasing short chain fatty acid in the gut. Um, uh, you know, another good one. It's one of those other, uh, four products from the ITP trials on mice that extended lifespan. I'm a big fan. Uh, but again, you have the same sometimes issues with some of those GI side effects. Um, and, and so uh, I don't do a carbos, although I'm a believer in it. It gave you GI side effects. Oh, I didn't take it. I haven't tried the a carbos, okay. uh, but, but, it gave uh, me GI side it, effects, but I want to try it again. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer again in the mech mechanism. Um, and, uh, but again, I, you know, being on the, the SL2s and the GLP1s probably less, uh, important for me. Awesome. Okay. Um, thanks so much for coming on, Ryan. Uh, I really well, learned quite a lot and, uh, maybe one day we'll, uh, you'll teach me yeah. about peptides more. I'll teach you about supplements more. I love it. You, you probably love know it. a ton about supplements already, but, um, yeah. It's uh, it was yeah. really a pleasure talking, and uh, also hopefully I, I think the platforms that we both have are are complementary. Like they're they're mm -hmm. they're telling you different things. They're both useful on their own right, um, independently. So I think uh, some collaborations there would be really nice as well. Yeah, I can't wait to do it. Hopefully we'll have some updates uh, on another uh, another uh, discussion. Oh, awesome. Okay, so yeah, I'll take another test, and then um, 
hopefully we could uh, do another podcast and discuss the results of that omics age test. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Sharon. I appreciate you having me on. And just, uh, I guess we should say, where can people go and buy this test? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I recommend going to our website at truediagnostic.com. That's T-R-U, diagnostic, and diagnostic is singular, no S, uh, .com. Um, and if they have any questions, you can always reach out to me at ryan at truediagnostic.com. All right, awesome. Appreciate hey, you being hey. on. Thanks, Jeff. All right, bye-bye. 67% of listeners aren't following the show. So please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free.